Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 26. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma and with me, my fabulous co-host and medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Glenn. How are you today? Greetings, Christina. I am wonderful. Thank you for asking. And I would like to uh, welcome all of our guests to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Wallman. I'll be your medical guide today, along with uh, Christina, as we search through the healthcare galaxy uh, for optimal health. There we How go. How is your uh, <laughs> life? How is my life? Yes. Brilliant, as always. Brilliant. I mean, there's so many wonderful adventures and journey, all encompassed in one day. <laughs> That's right, as it should be. We're going to be going on a really adventurous journey today, too, which we'll talk about in a moment. What's happening with uh, Trinity of Life? Oh, Trinity of Life has uh, been having a lot of fun. We just had a beautiful interview with um, a woman by the name of Parashakti, and she has come into a form of healing through dance. And it's called Dance of Liberation. Magnificent, magnificent um, uh, way of, of uh, getting the individuals completely tuned in and allowing their body to release, you know, uh, whether it be a physical ailment or mental ailments. Oh, it's just so exciting, Glenn, all these mm. different forms of healing arts. Yeah, I think the whole world seems to be tuning in to healing a lot more. and. Uh, it's not just the people, it's also the physicians and the medical oh, yes. uh, community, as is our guest today, who we will learn about. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to my very special guest, a friend and a colleague, and one of my personal physicians, Dr. David Cumes, who is a urologist here in uh, Santa Barbara. He did his training at Stanford, but that's only not even the tip of the iceberg. So I don't want to waste any time. I want to get right to talking to Dave and uh, go through his journey, and you'll see what an adventure and dance this is also. So good day, David, and I'd like to introduce you to Christina again. Hello, hello, Christina. Hello. Good to see you both. Hello, Dave. Yes, and I have to tell the audience, Dave was also um, what we consider a member of our faculty from the virtual world yoga and meditation conference where he presented his wonderful gifts to us at, at, during that conference. And now we can see him live. <laughs> yeah, I've gone, gone high tech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <See you guys. clears throat> That's the real key to magical medicine. We actually make Dave appear. <laughs> fantastic. So Normally, Dave, uh, as a medical guide, I like to tell our viewing audience how we're going to go today. But in this particular case, I'm not even sure how it's going to go. Uh, you have such an interesting combination of cultures and trainings and wisdoms that I'm going to try and hopefully weave all of that through your whole journey as we cover your life and how you take care of people. And combine that with some uh, specific urological symptoms. And for those people that don't know, the urology is about the bladder, the kidneys, the urethra, uh, urination, uh, the prostate gland, 
a number of areas like that, and we'll speak about that more. So does that sound okay to you, Dave? Sounds great, yeah. Whatever uh, you want to do is good. I do believe we need several days. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say several Daves. Uh, no. <laughs> Both. <laughs> I agree with that. So the first part, I always like to start out uh, – so that our viewers get a little bit of an understanding of who you are and what you're about on a personal level. And I like to relate that to health. So why don't you give us a few moments on when you decided to go into healing, uh, what made you uh, decide then to become a specialist in urology, bring us a little bit up to date into the Western part, and then we'll get into the other parts unless they're connected right now. Well, it's very unromantic. Initially, I actually thought I wanted to be a farmer, but I drifted <laughs> into medicine kind of by default and then stayed because I liked it. And uh, I actually did get board certified in general surgery in South Africa before I left and emigrated to California. And the reason I, I, I did urology was very practical because I would have had to repeat my general surgical residency all over again. So I decided I didn't want to do that, so I'd rather do something new that was less night work and more elective, so I chose urology, which I'd done and I'd enjoyed. Uh, so it was a very practical decision. Mm. Nice. You, you mentioned South Africa. That's where you were born? Born and raised there and left, you know, after I finished my general surgical training there. You know, I did my medical school there, everything there, before I got to Stanford. Mm. And then you're here in Santa Barbara. But... There's there's another part to you. You you were in Western medicine and and you went through your medical school and specialties and did all of the testing. But somehow within your life, uh, it seemed like there was another calling to you in terms of healing, not just looking at things through the microscope, but from another more natural, holistic way. Uh, you want to tell us about that a little bit? Yes, you know, after going to private practice and even leaving academics and arriving in Santa Barbara, I sort of had a bit of an existential crisis because I just realized that medicine wasn't doing the healing that I expected it to be doing. And I, I sort of had always had a romantic idea to go and spend time with the Bushmen of the Kalahari, the last hunter-gatherers, in, uh, certainly in southern Africa. And I took myself off to the Kalahari where I spent an extended period of time with them, uh, a lot of it on my own, in fact, most of it on my own. And I, I got in touch with a concept which I called wilderness rapture, which was sort of an idea maybe related to Maslow's peak experience, whereby if you were in wilderness and you immersed yourself as much as possible in a hunter-gatherer sort of lifestyle, you could go into spiritual states of consciousness which were quite, quite profound. In fact, I was practicing yoga at the time, and I found they were more profound than some of the yoga states that I'd experienced. So I came back from, uh, from the Kalahari inspired to have an alternative form of healing, which at that time took, you know, the, took the form of wilderness uh, healing and taking people into remote wilderness areas for the so-called wilderness rapture effect. Uh, so and I wrote a book about it, and that was the sort of theoretical side of what goes on there bringing in different uh, ideas and the practical side was my company called Inward Bound, a small company which was uh, designed to take people into the outback, Peru, South Africa, uh, you know, Sinai Desert, places like that. Dave, you mentioned uh, 
as you were talking about that, that you were unhappy with the the healing of uh, Western medicine. Could you go over that a little more or be a little more explicit in what you meant by that? Yeah, you know, before I went to the Kalahari, I'd spent some time in Peru with different healers, curanderos, shamans, and realized that they had knowledge of healing that we didn't have in our in our Western training. And they were doing pretty well with you know, low low te technology. And uh, I decided that what what had happened in the West is that we'd forgotten the basic principles of healing. And uh, in reality, I wanted to get back to those ideas. I didn't think I had any abilities as a shaman at that time, but I wanted to embrace some of those concepts, uh, such as the placebo response, uh, the power of distant healing, uh, medicine not localized in space and time. And these were things that only indigenous people knew about and were doing, and Western medicine would have called it witchcraft, you know. And I became very interested in trying to find a way to bring that knowledge into the Western uh, framework. And uh, after the first book, I, I wrote another book about the general principles of healing, which sort of talked about things like placebo and nocebo effect and uh, distant healing and, you know, the field and what one could get from the field effect, which is what the, the indigenous healers were using to, to great effect with their diagnoses and their healing. Mm. So uh, that's kind of what happened. But to try and integrate it into Western medicine was very difficult at the time. And I hadn't quite found what it was that was going to be the, the route. And I checked out different traditions, which I found fascinating, Ayurvedic medicine, uh, Native American shamanism, other forms of shamanism, etc. But it didn't quite fit. Uh, and then what really happened was when I was taking the inward bound trips back to South Africa, I would always check in with the local indigenous healers who are called Sangormas, knowing that they had profound wisdom, and they would throw these divination bones, an assortment of different animal bones, and they would give me information about the upcoming trip, but almost in invariably they said to me in addition, and this happened a half a dozen times, your ancestors are calling you to do our medicine, African medicine, uh, bone divinations, dreams, medicinal plants, and I thought it was a bit of a joke at first, I didn't think I had any abilities. And then uh, after I had so many different Sangormas in different parts of the country telling me the same thing, and namely that uh, the, it was the ancestors on my mother's side who were calling me, and there was a black woman who was a spirit guide who had been a Sangorma in a previous life uh, who wanted to help me with the divinations, you know, that I, I began to take it seriously until eventually one day because I was still dragging my feet. A woman, Sangoma, went into trance and pretty much read me the riot act and uh, said, you're not <laughs> listening to your ancestors, you know, your headaches that you're getting, your very bad headaches won't go away because you have the ancestor sickness, which mm. is typical for S South African healers. And I was getting migraines almost every week. And then I decided, well, I better take it seriously. Still not believing that I had any abilities, thinking I'm a left brain surgeon, you know, it's not going to happen. And then after I went through my initiation, which took about two years in Swaziland with an elderly Zulu Sangorma, you know, I found, wow, this stuff actually works, you know. Um, it happened. So, you know. Did, and it, then I did you find that it worked on you? Is that what made you realize that? Well, I knew it worked on me because I'd had different readings from Sangormas about my personal life. The most dramatic was when Zimbabwe one day I, I was busy going through a divorce and I was separated from my wife 
and I went to see a Sangwoma at the Victoria Falls, and he threw the bones, and he didn't know a thing about me. The only thing he could have known about me was I was South African. I talked like a South African. I looked like a South African. I dressed like a South African. He said, oh, you come from far away. He says, there's big trouble in your house. I don't see divorce in the bones, but there's big trouble. And he was 100% right on every single thing. We didn't get divorced then. We, you know, we got back together for a few years, and then I got divorced. And that blew me away. So I, I had no question about the validity of the information. The only thing I questioned was my ability to transmit it. You know, That was my concern. So that, that brings up something that's of interest to me in the sense that going from a left brain type of person where we know that in college and in medical school and during residencies, you uh, learn things, you take tests, be it written or oral, you work with attendings, you practice things under the guidance of someone else, and you learn things. And we can test you to say, okay, you are now accomplished in uh, doing this urological procedure, for example. What is it like going through the process of knowing you're going to be another type of healer that doesn't have that kind of testing? How do you how do you make that connection that allows you to do both? It was extremely difficult for me because I you know I had to have a rational concept to what I was doing, and you know the ancestors guided me to my teacher for good reason. They knew my you know what I needed, and the fellow that I I had as a mentor was an elderly Zulu who had an excellent command of English and was able to make me understand what was going on because you know, mm-hmm. otherwise I would have had no idea. And, uh, but it was very difficult for me to get out of the way of my left brain and, uh, and just let it happen. So it started off with a bone divination because he was instructed first to teach me the bones. And then uh, essentially with a the divination, there's the spirit guide is presiding who throws the bones in a non-random readable fashion. And then you learn to read the metaphors very much like, like wake, uh, reading the waking dream that's, that's somebody's life or your life. And I found that the bones worked. So what happened was after my first, you know, I'd spent a month there, then I'd go back to, to nurture my practice because I, you know, I couldn't be away for too long. When I went back a second time, the first thing he did is they, they woke, always wake you up early in the morning when the ancestors are around. He wake you up at three in the morning and pulls me into his hut and says, now we're going to test you and see if you remembered what I taught you, which I found very intimidating uh, <laughs> because, you know, he wanted me to, you know, the guy he was testing me against was some powerful Sangwoma. You know, he wasn't just any old fellow. And he said, don't, basically he said to me, don't question, just read the bones, you know. And I did, and it was came out right, and I was staggered. I was just amazed that it, it was correct. Mm. And then, you know, it was a very slow process of me convincing myself, firstly, that this stuff was reproducible, and secondly, convincing myself that I was actually capable of doing it. But in fact, it has nothing to do with you. It's just a question of finding a relationship with a spirit guide and a conversation so that you can transmit the messages from this field, the ancestral field, if you like, that's not localized in space and time. So it has tremendous advantages because there is no time on the other side. So they can be in the past, the present, and the immediate future and tell you what's going on. And that's not localized in space. So they can be in Santa Barbara and uh, Los Angeles and Johannesburg all at the same time without, you know, uh, it being a big deal. 
that's very useful information. You know, one of the reasons that, you know, the questions I often get is, well, why should I bother about my grandfather? He was illiterate. <laughs> well, most of the best Sangomas that I, I spent time with were could not read or write, but they could tell you what your son was having for breakfast, you know, 10,000 mm -hmm. miles away, you know, just facetiously I'm talking about. But, you know, uh, I was just staggered by the, the power of these people. <clears throat> you've... In, in your journey, you've written a number of books, and usually when someone writes a book, it's try to get something out that that person has experienced, but also to give knowledge to people. I'd like to mention some of the titles of your books, and maybe you can give me one or two sentences on what someone would learn by reading the book. So we talk about one book, it's called Inner Passage, Outer Journeys. Okay, well, this came out of my Bushman experience, which was out of a minimalistic experience. And the trouble with our uh, attention in life is it's very outward bound, and that's why I called it company inward bound. And we go into wilderness to perform, to run rapids, to, to bag peaks, to conquer mountains, very sort of militaristic jargon, you know. We're always performing and trying to be uh, very fit or very brave or very left brain, very masculine in wilderness. And the way to heal in wilderness is to tap into the right brain, you know, the the, the yin, the you know, the, the moon side, the feminine side of our nature. So that's really what the the first book is about, tapping into this other side of us that yoga and some of these other disciplines talk to, where you can access some of these amazing experiences and, and the so called wilderness rapture idea. Uh, so that was really what it was. It was gleaned from psychology and from ancient wisdom, especially from yoga. Okay. The spirit of healing. Spirit of healing was, strangely enough, <laughs> kind of amusing because I'd had all that information in my first book, and they sent it back to me, and Llewellyn were quite gracious, and they sent it back to me with a review from the fellow who'd reviewed it who said it was actually a woman who said, this man has put his whole life experience into this one book. That's okay if your name is Dostoevsky, but yours isn't, you know. <laughs> so I had to go and cull out all the stuff that didn't apply to the first book, and that became the second book, which really became the, the different principles of what it was that makes us heal, you know. The inner healer, the placebo effect, uh, the power of distant healing and distant diagnosis, those kind mm. of factors. Okay. I like the next title, Africa in My Bones. I, I'm guessing that's a play on uh, many things, including the throwing of the bones. Exactly. Yeah, that was a description of my initiation and how the technology works so that it's understandable to the Western mind and it doesn't sound you know, foreign. I think the reasons the ancestors called me to, to, to do the work, you know, there are 250,000 Sangomas in South Africa, many of whom are much more powerful uh, than I am, I think the idea they had was to try and translate the, you know, the information that's ancient information in a way that was understandable to to the Western mind. And you know, the message to me was, you've got to take that that information from there to bring to here, to bring to the West. It wasn't about going to live in South Africa, even though I spent a lot of time there. Mm. Mm. Messages from the ancestors, wisdom uh, for the way. Yeah, now this was an interesting phenomenon because what happened, and, and uh, this is hard to put in just a few sentences, at the same time that I was getting initiated, 
I'd met uh, a senior um, citizen, very, very erudite lady who ran uh, a section of adult education. Glenn knows her very well. And she and I became good friends. And I was giving uh, lectures in her workshops about wilderness rapture and the principles of, uh, of healing and so on. And then I came back from South Africa and I was, uh, um, I was now in, initiated as a Sangoma. And she began to get dreams for me. It's called getting somebody else's mail because the ancestors <laughs> go to the most clear, the, the easiest channel. And she's an amazing channel for the, the information. And they came through with a whole bunch of information uh, that's very, very profound. And these sayings that you know, very much ancient wisdom sayings from a, a, a wide range of uh, spirit guides. Some are Celtic, some are African, some are Kabbalistic Hebrew uh, characters, which have universal principles. So that's the book. It's, it's a collection of about 70 of these sayings that have come to both of us that we put down pretty much verbatim and that uh, we've got many, many more, but they only wanted this many. And uh, most of them she actually got rather than I did. But, uh, you know, we came together on the project and some of them came through me. But I can get like one-liners. Uh, she, you know, she can get whole paragraphs, which is quite extraordinary. We won't mention her name, but I, I do believe, unless you feel comfortable doing that, but I, I think she would be wonderful on uh, Christina's show, Trinity of Life. She would just be perfect for that. She would be uh, wonderful, but she will not be on camera. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> no, I know that. Well, yeah. we would have to meet her for a breakfast yeah. uh, and uh, just interview her. So yeah. he healing trees and plants of the Lofeld? Yeah. Well, when I finished my initiation in, in, in Swaziland, and then I completed more work in uh, Limpopo, which is north northern South Africa, close to the Limpopo River, uh, Two very powerful Sangoma said to me, you have your diagnostic tools, but you have no medicine bag. So I had a dream um, to get about, about a healing center in this area, which I eventually found and developed and built. And after seven years at the healing center, which eventually I lost to land claims in South Africa, which is a long story, uh, the seven years spent there was to, it was kind of my post-grad residency program, if you like, my Sangoma like residency. I was like an intern when I finished in Swaziland, and uh, I needed to do a, a residency program. So that was my residency program, part of which was learning about plant medicines. And that book was uh, the result of all the stuff that I'd learned while I was in this incredibly biodiverse part of mm -hmm. Southern Africa. There are more plants on that mountain, which is tiny, than in the whole of Can Canada. There are over <sighs> 600 trees in that area many of which are very, very powerful medicinal trees. And I spent seven years learning as much as I could just about the medicinal ones, never mind all the other ones. <laughs> so let's get, let's start talking actually about uh, some practical things right now in medicine and urology. You do have a practice here. You actually have both practices here where you're practicing as uh, a urologist, seeing diseases that, like prostate cancers and uh, kidney stones and interstitial cystitis, et cetera. So when you see people that come into your office for these normal things, let's take prostate cancer for a, a moment or two, do you keep yourself in 
a Western way where you're thinking strictly Western, or do you always go to both sides of the process? What happens when you see someone in an office? It really depends on the on the patient. You know, uh, most of the patients I have come to me maybe because I have more of a maybe an empathetic or compassionate uh, approach. You know, which comes out of my 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 indigenous training. So, but I would say that ninety percent of the people that I see, it's it's strictly Western. Uh, but of course, if something comes into that Western part uh, through my indigenous training. Uh, there's a lot of intuitive information that's coming in. I have a sense of the person and who they are. I might have a dream about the person, which will change what I do. If I'm worried about something, I might not operate on the somebody unless I've checked with the bones to see if it's the right thing, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So I wear two hats, but with a lot of people, 90% of the hat is the Western hat, and the other 10% is an intuitive hat. But I don't know, it might be more than 10%. Uh, one of my greatest teachers was a surgeon, a professor in South Africa, who was clearly psychic, but he never thought he was psychic. He just thought he was a good clinician. But now, in retrospect, I knew he was getting information he couldn't possibly have been getting from his clinical acumen. So uh, I think that that sort of approach is most of the patients I see. But then there are other patients who come to see me, the other 10% who know who I am. They know I'm kind of a weird package and that I have these other skills, or sometimes they ask about them, and then I say, well, you know, if you're interested in the cosmology of your life and the psycho-spiritual polarities of maybe why you got sick and some of the other understandings of what African medicine can add to Western medicine because there are diseases in uh, indigenous medicine not recognized by us and not even recognized by the cutting edge of psychoimmunology and psychiatry. They don't have any idea about them. And uh, these people then I see at home and I do divinations on them and it might say something to, it might say, well, you better leave your husband if you're going to be well. Or it might say, you know, the job is toxic, you've got to get out of your job. Things that they may have known but they've been in denial and they didn't realize to what extent maybe that, that this had something to do with their illness. Because in indigenous thinking, dis-ease, uh, dysfunction, disharmony, lack you know, poor energy uh, balance eventually will lead to disease, you know, and there's just no doubt about it mm. that they will tell you they go to the root source of the problem, whereas we just fix the, the net result, you know. We and we meaning in the Western world. We we in the Western world, yeah. Right. Well, Dr. Coombs, it's it's uh, always fascinating to hear you speak of this, and I always think of, of your patients and how they would react. Um, do you disclose that that you work with both forms when you no, first meet a patient? No, I never do. But when they come in the waiting room, you know, the books are there together with the periodicals and the people pick up the books and they get a sense of, of that. Some of them, you know, check the websites and, you know, probably I don't know how many patients I lose because of my website. <laughs> uh, but many of them pick, you know, check the website and they say, well, this guy looks interesting. Maybe I'll go and see him. Um, you know, the trouble with Western medicine today, and I think it's to my advantage, is computer technology and robotics is amazingly profound, but it's getting rid of the uh, some of the essential ingredients of healing. Mm. And I think that in the office, those ingredients still exist in my office. So whether they, they see me because they want to see me as a urologist, 
uh, or, or the other, that I think they're drawn to, to that paradigm or then it comes mostly by word of mouth. I would imagine that most of the, the, the doctors in town do not refer to me, but I get most of my, my referrals by word of mouth. But there are guys like Glenn, you know, who will refer patients to me. Um, but in terms of a percentage, I would say it's probably 10% of, of the physicians might be supportive of me as a doctor. Others know I'm a good you know, Western doctor, so they still have respect for me because I'm in the trenches. But I think I'm a little bit too out there for most of them. <laughs> I, have to, I have to add that anyone and everyone that I've ever sent to uh, Dr. Cumes has been so grateful over the years. They uh, continue to thank me for referring them to him. Many different people have done that, and I am always very happy to be able to do that. I still want to. I still want to cover a few of the uh, things that people will have problems with in the Western world, and I want to see what your concepts are on them. And I do want to talk about uh, for men. Prostate cancer is something very big now. So maybe you can talk to us for a few moments as a Western doctor of what's the newest and the greatest? What are some of the uh, myths about uh, diagnosing the cancer? What do we need to do? Give us a little summary of prostate cancer and prostate health, actually. Yeah, well, as you well know, you know it's a very complex disease. We could talk for a week on it. But the, the single most important thing I can say today to men listening Get your PSA regardless of what the, this finding has found because PSA has saved thousands and thousands of lives, uh, tens of thousands of lives. Uh, if every oncologist had a test as good as a PSA, they would be very, very happy. The problem with the PSA is like anything in medicine. Reading it is an art form. It's not a scientific thing, and it, it, it's really a question of how to read the PSA and what to do with a diagnosis of prostate cancer, which is the issue. Uh, the vast majority of prostate cancers will not kill you, and that's what they are talking about. But there's a significant number of highly aggressive prostate cancers that are the same as breast cancer or colon cancer that will kill you very, very quickly. And the controversy is about if you have one of the more benign forms of prostate cancer, what mm -hmm. to do with that, in which case surveillance is a very good idea. But uh, the one thing that's very alternative for me is you've got to know the truth. And if you have a, a diagnosis of prostate cancer, there are all sorts of alternative things that can help you, mostly having to do with diet, lifestyle, exercise, yoga, meditation. Uh, but certainly diet, animal fats are, be, are the enemy, including dairy. And there are supplements such as pomegranate and lycopene in tomatoes and vitamin D3 and uh, fish oil tablets and cumin and other things that can be very, very good and can actually, even if you have cancer, uh, help keep your PSA down or help it from not going up too rapidly. Mm -hmm. But I think th that's the biggest thing I would say is get your PSA and don't listen to the findings. The sad thing is men are unfortunately not as proactive as women. There was no way in hell the women are going to stand for the mammogram has been taken away. But, of course, men are so, oh, well, okay, if they don't think it's a good idea, I guess I won't get it, yeah. which is really a shame. Uh, as far as the treatment is concerned, you know, the robotics is very sexy, but it still hasn't been proven to be any better. Than Please the explain procedure. the robotics to our listeners for a moment. Well, the robotic is kind of scary if you think of it because you have a guy who's sitting behind a console looking at a computer kind of like Segovia is, 
and who's manipulating uh, an arm that is doing the surgery or a number of arms, and it, the magnification is superb and the optics is superb, but David never created Michelangelo with a robot, you know? So I don't think there's anything that can, can be better than the human hand, but what is better is it's less invasive, um, certainly for certain operations in the upper abdomen. There's no question you want to have a robotic or laparoscopic approach where some trocars are put into your belly with cameras and telescopes and instruments that can work through small holes, sometimes through even one hole, uh, and uh, it's remarkable what can be done. But I think it's also true to say that in the lower abdomen, uh, the difference in pain and all the rest of it is not that great, although it is hugely different in the upper abdomen, which is a much more painful uh, operative procedure. So unfortunately, these days, the, the, the dark side of medicine, the light side of the technology is amazing. The dark side is separating us from the inner healer and from the doctor-patient relationship and dissociating us from so, so many of the important principles of healing. Not to mention that now the bioengineers are taking over the field and it's become a, a question of marketing, often without real integrity. You know, they're making fantastic claims for the robot, which do not exist really. There isn't really any difference at this stage between the open and the other, at least significant difference. So, um, you know, I think the truth is that the robot's here to stay and it is amazing technology and it gives you access to doing other things that you do want to have done with a robot. And, you know, the one thing you don't want to be having probably is an open operation because probably not many people doing it anymore. Better to go to somebody who's doing a lot of them uh, frequently and, you know, there's always going to be a better result. Uh, but I, I, those are the two things I think I would highlight. Uh, the fact is prostate cancer is a special cancer in terms of a relationship between the inner healer, the balance of the inner healer, and the cancer. Almost like, you know, if you look at uh, parasitic diseases, for instance, malaria, there's so many people living quite reasonably healthy lives in Africa with malaria because they have a good balance between the inner healer and the parasite. Well, if you think of a lot of prostate cancers maybe being a parasite, you might not have to cure it to be healthy, and you not, might not have to be cured to be healed. And uh, I think prostate cancer is an ideal cancer to talk about in this respect because unlike most other cancers, we talk about a 15-year survival rate in prostate cancer, which really means, you know, if you're uh, around for five years, you're not going to know whether, you know, the, the treatment has worked. Most people will be fine at five years. Any other cancer, if you haven't cured it, it's going to tell you in very quick mm -hmm. time whether, you know, it's back or not. So where you have a, a cancer where in most of the cases you have talking about a 10 or 15 year life expectancy and men who are usually quite old, it becomes a question of, you know, can you find a balance between yourself and the, the cancer? And if you can't, you better to have it treated. But if you can, you might be quite well off with surveillance. Mm -hmm. And you talked about surveillance and uh, surgery. What about radiation? You know, that's the other thing that's, I think, changed uh, is the technology in the radiation and implantation of radioactive seeds has exploded, whereas the, the, the technology in surgery is pretty much the same. Whether you do it robotically or openly, you're doing, getting the same operation. Uh, and, you know, if you, when I was doing open prostatectomies many, you know, some years ago, I don't do them anymore because of the advent of the robot, uh, uh, the open radical prostatectomy was still the gold standard. 
But now the results with radiation uh, oncology and with the implantation of radioactive seeds are just as good pretty much for most cases as they are for uh, radical surgery. And sometimes for more advanced cases are even better, you know, because mm. radiation can have more of a global effect combined with hormone therapy. So I think these days, it and it's very complicated, but for the, the average run-of-the-mill cancer, you have four very good options. If you're older, um, you know, and you're not going to live, you know, your life expectancy might be, um, you know, uh, it's not going to be more than 10 years. You could do very well with surveillance or, or any of the modalities. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have surveillance, you have implantation of seeds, you have what's called IMRT, which is int Intensity Modulated Radiation Therapy, which is computer-generated, which means they can direct the beam so accurately that there's no spillover to the other tissues and no harm done to the other tissues or very little. And they can boost the dose up to a much higher kill rate, and that's what's accounted for the escalation in the results. And then, of course, seeds, which is almost an out, which is an outpatient procedure, which um, is much less morbid. But there are cases who might be much better off with a radical operation, and many patients prefer to have it out of their body. And you can't argue with the fact that if it's confined to the prostate and it's out of your body, that's your best chance of a cure. But you know, the the, the data don't necessarily support that. Uh, you know, radiation, of course, is a seven-week thing, five days a week, but it doesn't take long. But some people prefer the a quick fix of either surgery or pl implantation of seeds. Sometimes there's also uh, side effects. Uh, as you say, now we're able to uh, put that radiation beam right at a focused laser point. But some years ago, we weren't as easily able to do that. And mm. people developed some side effects from radiation, maybe in the distal colon area, et cetera. So right. I think it's always important for people to, when they're making their choices, to uh, find out what's, what it's going to be, not just the surgery or the treatment itself, but what it's going to be like living with it afterwards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Dave, when you mentioned a few moments ago that the prostate cancer really has to do also with the inner healer, uh, I think that brings up how we can intertwine how you might work with a person aside from their surgery, do you suggest sometimes to them when you see something that they may also want to do this type of work and bring in your sanguoma uh, healing arts? Yeah, you know, then again, you know, 90% of the patients are not really interested in that, but they are interested in diet. So the things I mentioned earlier, I always tell the patients to supplement their treatment uh, with the diet. Uh, you know, I used to say check with your radiation oncologist about antioxidants because they could interfere with the radiation therapy effect, but it seems as if it does, they, they do not. Uh, so I always discuss diet and I always discuss lifestyle and exercise and the power of meditation and, uh, and, and no stress. I've noticed that I've had some patients in my practice who've been doing very well in balance with their prostate and their inner healer. And then they have something very stressful that happens to them. I remember one guy who should have been dead years before who was coping with a highly aggressive prostate cancer and never came to see me unless he had a problem. And this was about 10 years out. And then he moved up north to, to Reading. And within a few months, he was dead because of you know the stress of moving. 
Um, another person I know, a very uh, um, intellectual guy who was a professor at one of the universities who remodeled his house at the time, which can be terribly stressful, and didn't do as well as he should have done. You know, he could have been around longer on the planet. So I talked to them about all lifestyle changes because, it, you know, the data is there. That it's unquestionable that it helps. And now, you know, they are, um, you know, there, there's work on pomegranate juice showing that you can uh, decrease the, you know, the, the rate of PSA increase uh, if you have cancer and all this kind of stuff. But what's actually more interesting now is if you're looking at some of the recent psychoimmunology, you're starting to see that all the things we know that have been preached by ancient wisdom, you know, the power of compassion, the power of love, uh, the power of forgiveness, uh, the power of assertiveness, uh, the power of congruence, which con a congruence, sorry, being your own person and not being a pleaser or a yes person, all have, uh, you know, all have incredible effects on your immune system. For instance, an HIV patients who have forgiven uh, the people who gave them the HIV have much higher T-cell counts and a much more powerful immune system and, and do much better than people who have not forgiven people, uh, you know, the people who gave them the HIV. So there's all sorts of information coming out that's very hard to talk about in the light of uh, the, you know, the practice. Because, you know, you can't start talking to somebody about forgiveness uh, in your office and say, hey, is there anybody who, you know, you need to forgive? Uh, I mean, I could, but it's a bit awkward. It's kind of personal. <laughs> but if somebody comes to for a divination and it says, you know, you have the shadow over your of your grandfather sitting mm -hmm. on top of you, he wants to be forgiven. And until you, he's forgiven, the shadow won't go away. And then you explain to them that a shadow, you know, which is kind of like being haunted by the ghost of your grandfather, is not a good thing to have because it can get in the way of your energy field, can inhibit your inner healer, uh, can affect your luck, can make you anxious, depressed, and all, all that kind of thing. Then you have a different context, a different conversation in which you can address some of these really very cutting-edge modern-day um, psychoimmunology stuff which is just telling you what the Buddhists and the yogis and the Kabbalists and the and ancient wisdom has been telling you anyway, but nobody pays any attention because that's not who we are, you know. How long do you think it's going to be before that becomes part of uh, a general practice for all doctors to have some form of, of this concept, to be able to have those discussions with people? Or do you ever see it happening? It's going to happen, and it's happening more and more. It's interesting that, you know, Recently, I was invited to Houston to, I didn't even know there was such an association called the American Medical Students Association. It's a huge organization. I think there must have been 1,500 people at the conference. It was massive. Uh, Sibelius even came to give an address, uh, and they invited me to talk about Sangoma medicine, not in, a, not in a peak, not in a keynote, but in one of the breakaway sessions. But the fact that they actually had medical students, and the room was packed, you know, the to capacity, about 100 people were there wanting to hear about some freaky guy talking about, you know, uh, <laughs> bones and things, I thought was very encouraging. And I got a lot of, you know, comments about, you know, that one woman even wrote to me recently, said that they won't get you back because they don't like to reinvite, but do you have another topic in case they do, you know? So they do want to hear this stuff and, you know, they, they won't admit necessarily to uh, you know, to their colleagues that they're doing it. I think that's the problem. But 
the fact that the consci consciousness is changing mm. and the fact that I still have privileges, I mean, it's a testament <laughs> to, to the fact that it's changing. How quickly, yeah, I, I can't say. It's interesting to watch doctors. There was, uh, I think, a uh, study done of cardiologists uh, many, many years ago where they asked them how many cardiologists uh, used, for example, antioxidants, and none of them raised their hand. And then the next year at the conference, they asked it again, and there was a smattering, and then a few years next year, a lot more. And then they asked the next question. They said, how many of you uh, use them and so – prescribe them to your patients. And of course, none did that. And then a year later, a few were prescribing them. So it, it takes this <laughs> long process where first they have to agree to it and not tell anyone, then they're willing to tell, and then maybe they'll suggest it. Usually it happens, at least in my experience, after they've gone through the limits of Western medicine and haven't gotten that uh, result that they want. So they go to someone else, an acupuncturist, or try something else, and then suddenly they um, they become sort of a believer. At first, they won't believe it, but then they'll talk about it a little, and then they'll start sending people. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, William Osler, who I know you know well, said the superstition of yesterday will become the, the you know, the cutting-edge technology of today, and that's kind of what's happening, you mm -hmm. know. Eventually, we will come to realize that medicine not localized in space and time is powerful stuff. You know, just like the quantum physicists now recognize that Newton's physics was very, very limited, you know. Mm. Um, but it's a little too much of a stretch. Interesting enough, I remember we probably talked about this way back, but Cottage Hospital here asked me to check into the possibility of an integrative alternative medicine at Cottage. And we sent out uh, a questionnaire. Uh, which pretty much jive with the uh, with the questionnaires that I'd seen been sent out to similar institutions, and a third of the doctors were, were were very much in favor of it, a third were okay with it, and a third were violently against it. So, you know, basically 60%, and this was 10 years ago, were pretty much in favor of it, but they won't endorse it openly because they don't want to appear to be weird. Mm -hmm. You know. What I'm curious about is. The age groups that were like would welcome it, and the ones that were violently against it, you know, where the the the, the age group of those individuals were. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know the the answer, but I would I would assume that probably the younger ones are more more open to it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I think given the fact that what I saw at the uh, at the medical students convention, you know, I wasn't the only person who was talking about different stuff. But you know, Larry Darcy, who's a you know very well respected author on integrative medicine, has described three eras of medicine, uh, which I think is a very good description. The the first era of medicine is where the one that Glenn and I were trained in. You know, it's cause and effect. You've got acute appendicitis. You take out the appendix. Your coronary artery is blocked. You fix it. You've got diabetes, you get insulin, that type of thing. The second area of medicine is what is the mind-body connection. And that was unheard of when I, and I went through medical school, but now it's passe. You know, nobody disputes that now. But the third area of medicine, which, which is what he says is now the cutting edge, is medicine not localized in space and time. You know, the fact that, you know, if you don't want to go to, you know, the weird 
title of a sangwoma or shaman, you can go to a respectable title of a medical intuitive who won't tell you that your left coronary artery is blocked, but will tell you, you know, you need to see a cardiologist, you have a problem, even though you know, she or he doesn't know the first thing about you. About you. And the other cutting edge of the third area of medicine is uh, distant healing, which, of course, uh, shamans have been doing for eons, where, you know, somebody at a distant distance can heal you or help you with prayer or with healing, uh, especially if they're skilled at it, even if you don't know that they're doing it. Um, so that, you know, you can get distant diagnosis, you can receive information through the field that will help the patient, and you can, you can, uh, you can give out inf uh, healing into the field with distant healing. And if you look at some of the double-blind studies that have been done, and there are a number of them now, uh, the results are so staggeringly better. You know, they take one group and they give them standard therapy. I'm thinking, for instance, of a huge study that was done in the Bay Area in San Francisco. They took HIV patients, comparable groups. The one group got um, standard medical therapy. The other group got standard medical therapy plus distant healing, and they did not know they were being healed so that the placebo effect could be discounted. The, the results were so dramatically better in the healed group that if it would have been a pill, you would have been negligent for not giving that medicine. You know? oh. But because it's healing, you know, people don't worry about it. We, we want something that's sexy. We want the magic bullet. We want the robot. We want the laser, you know, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Something that's tangible to people as opposed to energetic, yeah. which they cannot see, they cannot touch. Exactly. Tangible, and if it's Star Trekky, that's even better. That's even know? Well, we yeah. could always do that. We could always give you a mask and, you know, yeah. have you breathe like Darth Vader. <laughs> give me a wand, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, when you talk about uh, the three eras of medicine, I think, uh, at least in my mind, it's we can't look at just one or the other or the other. They all come into play when mm -hmm. your appendix is bursting. Uh, most people would not wait for a distant healer, I would think. Uh, is that your feeling also, that they really oh, all absolutely. need to come into play uh, for the best type of healing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's why I haven't given up the Western medicine, because the Western medicine is total magic. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about alternatives. You know, if you look at a lot of the alternatives, you know, in terms of uh, plant medicines uh, and herbs and things, they're disappointing. You know, they're really disappointing. Even acupuncture has its uses, but uh, not as many as we would have liked or thought, you know. Uh, but if you look at lifestyle changes, th those are huge. You know, diet, exercise, meditation, guided imagery, body work, anything that adjusts your energy body and puts you in touch with your inner healer and puts you in touch with the field, to my mind, seems to be more powerful than picking a plant and eating it when you've got a perfectly good medical remedy. Yes, mm -hmm. it might have side effects, but mostly that you know you, they do pretty well. So I think there's no question the technology. I would never substitute an MRI scan for the bones ever. Uh, but if you don't have an MRI scan and you go to South Africa and you're in the bush and you go and see a sangoma, and he says you know to you, well maybe you should go and see a heart doctor when you get into town. And that saves your life. You know, that's powerful medicine. Mm -hmm. Powerful Because you medicine. may never have gone. Yeah. Uh, just a quick answer, and I pretty much know your answer, but I think it would be good for everyone else to hear. You mentioned herbs. Uh, 
saw palmetto is always brought up now. A lot of marketing, a lot of interest in saw palmetto and the prostate. What are your thoughts? There's a lot of different ones. Stinging nettle, salt palmetto, African prune, African potato, um, you know, all of those. The, the double-blind studies do not hold up. A uh, recent one on salt palmetto, you know, it doesn't hold up. Placebo seems to be what, what, what's working. And, you know, prostate, as you know, is a very, very uh, funny disease in that the symptoms vary. So they can come and they can go. And, you know, if you drink more caffeine, they'll be worse. And then you'll attribute the fact that you stopped caffeine to the salt palmetto. Mm. Um, so uh, the results do not hold up. Actually, it's something I had a big interest in because of all the ones that I looked at, the one that had the most uh, appeal and was the most effective was called African potato or hypoxis. And the results that they did out of Stellenbosch University showed that the results were far better uh, than any of the others. It was marketed as, uh, I think, Harzol. Uh, in uh, in Germany, and I think it's still for sale, and Moducare in Canada, and I think it's still for sale, and then also didn't pan out. And I must say, I brought African potato uh, back to Santa Barbara from South Africa, and I tried it on my patients, and I thought it was useless. Mm. So, you know, that's my own objective uh, idea of it. Uh, I've got a very sensitive bullshit antenna for these things. So, placebo <laughs> is huge, but, uh, you know... Uh, that's why we have double-blind studies, and that's why we have the scientific method. And uh, all these anecdotal things do not prove the test of time. And more and more what I'm seeing is that the real alternative stuff is stuff you can do to yourself and to your own inner healer. Mm -hmm. And yes, diet is part of that, and there are supplements that are really good. Uh, but I still don't know of one for the prostate other than the ones that will prevent cancer that I've talked about briefly. And also, uh, Dr. Coombs, if I may, um, in, in my experiences and my journeys and, and learning from the different elders as well, uh, it's, um, and I think we might have discussed this during the conference as well, but it's also um, the energetic value that that herb or plant might hold, like where it was planted, who was planting it, what was uh, nurtured, how it was nurtured that would give a higher, what we call frequency, to the value of its healing. Absolutely, that's a, you know, you made a very good point because if you know, somebody who doesn't understand the plant and doesn't have a relationship with the plant, picks it and maybe eats it because they read it in Reader's Digest, I don't believe that's gonna be of much benefit unless they really believe in it. You know, the placebo mm -hmm. will override. But what you've just said is the absolute key to uh, African plant use. You know, I spent five, uh, seven years studying it, and what I found out was that, yes, these, these plants have a pharmacological effect, but they, uh, you know, it's not well described. Uh, and that if you look at the different healers that use the plant, you'll find that one will use it for the complete opposite of another healer. Mm. Somebody will use it for diarrhea, and the other guy will use it for constipation. Or somebody might use it to create an abortion, and the other one might use it to prevent an abortion. So it made no sense to me other than the fact that there were plants of power that everybody used, plants of high vibration, and it went according to the law of similars, the law of signatures, a bit like homeopathy. Like if you had a kind of a problem with your bloodstream, uh, it tended to be a red plant. They use animal uh, uh, 
ingredients as well. So if you needed courage, you, you know, they gave you lion fat or something like that. But my understanding of how it works, you know, if you look at, you know, the Americas, they talk about the plant spirit mm -hmm. and uh, that the plant spirit is the, is the one who's giving you the healing. Now, I never heard them talking about that in Africa, but they would talk about this is a strong plant. This is a very powerful plant. And the way I work with plants is I work with them as a, a messenger, a password to the ancestor for a particular healing. Mm -hmm. So I don't use them for organic diseases, but I might, you know, uh, in a special instance where Western medicine had failed and there was no good alternative. Uh, but I use them for psycho-spiritual problems, uh, but more as a message to the ancestor so that if I'm dealing with a particular problem, I will use maybe a particular number of plants that my ancestors know, kind of like it's a prescription to the spirit world, like instead of going to, to the pharmacy with a, an Rx for penicillin and then the guy fills it for you, when I use the plant and they, 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 they drink it or they bath with it or, or use it topically, I don't usually like them to take it internally. Uh, the ancestors who are on the other side, they're in the field, they're saying, hey, Dave wants us to fix this. And every time the person uses that plant, and it's used very much like an antibiotic, you know, as a course, uh, then that plant is brought into action uh, mm. because it is a password to them to do the distant healing. And I think that's what you're touching on, and you're absolutely 100% right. Mm. When you do it in conjunction with a spirit, uh, the power is tremendous. And this is the problem with so many of these companies, pharmaceutical companies are looking for magical formulas. I'm not sure they aren't existing, but I don't know if you remember that movie with Sean Connery, Medicine Man, where they go to the jungle mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to try and discover this plant. Well, of course, the shaman left out the main ingredients. That's the first thing. They're not going to tell a white guy who's spent their li whole life persecuting them the secret remedy. <laughs> so they're going to give you what they you – know, that you can go back. You spend millions of dollars researching it. You find out it's no good. A good example is hudia, the, the Kalahari plant the Bushmen use for uh, diet suppression for weight loss, which was used here, was popular, was totally useless, because it works for a Bushman who's hunting and gathering and has 3% bush uh, body fat, but it doesn't work for a couch potato who's in 100 pounds overweight. Yeah. Uh, so this is the problem, I think, in terms of the understanding of what's, of what's really going on. So whether you call it the spirit of the plant or whether you talk about the vibration or whether you call it the ancestor or the spirit guide, I don't think it matters. But when you elicit a plant with a certain energy, you are invoking a whole other phenomenon from the field, the, the nature of which I don't fully understand, but I know it works. Mm. Mm. One, so, of the, um, one of the answers that I had in doing my research on phytobotanicals, et cetera, when you brought up that some plants can be treated for, can be used as a treatment for constipation or diarrhea, the explanation was very good for me in the sense that most of the medicines that we're used to Western-wise, it's only one ingredient usually, plus a couple of fillers to keep it in the capsule or whatever. But in a plant-based uh, system, there are many things in the plant that uh, are operating, and it was the sense that the body would know which part of the plant to use at the time. But I, uh, I think you covered it fairly well. I want to offer the uh, feminine part of your uh, 
process also in that we covered prostate cancer. I'd like to talk about uh, maybe one topic that a lot of women seem to have, and it seems to be just very frustrating for them, and that's called interstitial cystitis. Yeah, very good, very good one to choose. You know, they're both extremely prevalent. Uh, IC, which is, you know, the abbreviation, is very common in all ages of women and uh, isn't always recognized. So it'll often present as a bladder infection and usually will be treated with antibiotics until eventually somebody gets the, the, the picture that this person doesn't actually have bacteria in the urine and it keeps coming back with the same symptom and then usually they'll see a urologist. And today I must say most urologists and gynecologists will recognize the syndrome and treat it quite effectively. But when I was doing my residency, hardly anybody was talking about it, although they had a whole study going on uh, in, at Stanford. The symptoms are distinctly different for a urinary infection where you can really make the diagnosis you know, on the phone. Uh, urinary infections, usually there's burning, there's frequency, there's urgency, uh, there's getting up at night, there may be some low backache. If it gone into the kidney, there'll be a fever with pain in the side, and there may be blood in the urine, uh, very distinct. And then you do the culture and the urinalysis, which will confirm white cells and bacteria uh, of a certain type. When it's uh, interstitial cystitis, it's usually uh, different kind of symptoms that can be quite strange, but frequently it's pressure above the pubic bone, often aggravated when the, the bladder is full or when the bladder is being emptied or it feels better when it's empty. And then it uh, uh, can be aggravated by uh, irritants, in the, the irritants to the urinary tract. So the enemies of IC are also the enemies of the prostate. Uh, caffeine, um, even matine, you know, like in herba mate, uh, has got uh, a stimulating, mm. irritating effect to the bladder. And then alcohol, of course, spicy food, uh, chocolate, I'm afraid, uh, for women is a tough one. Uh, not only the, the caffeine <laughs> in it, but the theobromine in the, in the, in the, in the chocolate. And the acid foods like uh, tomatoes and citrus and so on. And cranberry, whereas cranberry can be quite a decent prevention for urinary infection. It won't cure an infection, but it can prevent infection. Cranberry is a no-no for, uh, for IC. Um, so these are the symptoms. You know, usually you, uh, there's often pain with intercourse because the bladder is inflamed. And the pathology is one of bladder inflammation. And, um, you know, you can't diagnose it by looking in the bladder because the bladder looks normal. The only way you'll diagnose it, the patient never comes to see you again because she's in agony for three days and maybe wants to hit you while you're doing the instrumentation um, because it's so painful. Uh, there is another test that is kind of brutal, brutal called the potassium sensitivity test, where instead of doing a cystoscopy and looking in the bladder, you put a catheter into the bladder, and then you run a solution into the bladder of potassium, and it hurts like hell, and then you know that it's got IC, which you know, I don't like to do. So there's, there's another way of diagnosing it under anesthesia, which is less brutal, uh, but you have to stretch the bladder up under maximal capacity to see the little bleeding spots break out and to diagnose the inflammatory response. And the treatment is symptomatic because we don't know what causes it. You know, whether it's an allergy or a virus or an autoimmune uh, problem, we're not sure. Certainly stress-related, often associated with chronic fatigue syndrome and spastic colon or irritable bowel syndrome. 
Um, and uh, usually it's a lifestyle change, a bland diet, no irritants that I mentioned, and different medications can be used to help it, and frequently it'll get better as long as you stay uh, you know, with the right kind of lifestyle. So that was a, a very good Western answer, and now I want to weave in the sanguoma uh, that okay. clearly you talked about yeah. with the prostate, there's inner healings. I would guess that in this case, there might also be inner healings. What happens there? Well, let me go in between the Sangoma and the Western to the chakra system. Mm. I, I completely believe that, you know, each person has their own vulnerable chakra, you know. Uh, I think men and women both, uh, the sexual chakra, the second chakra, uh, which is the organs of the sigmoid colon, the lower colon, the bladder, the uterus, the cervix, uh, all in that chakra system. So, uh, and frequently there's a lot of dysfunction in the system relating to either sexual problems or maybe abuse issues. Um, now, you know, clearly there'll be other people who have uh, the heart chakra that's a problematical thing, or the throat chakra and the thyroid might be a problematical thing. You know, the, the, the chakra of expression, creative expression, where they're not expressing who they should be. So it'll manifest there. So it starts with disease in the in the, that autonomic center of the body, which is well delineated by ancient yoga, and then it becomes disease. Uh, so that's the one way of looking at it. So that you could possibly go to, uh, you know, a body worker who may intuitively pick up problem in your second chakra, and then you might go and get a, a PSA or a pelvic exam and a pap smear or whatever. But uh, if you were to come for and ask me about the African side of it, I would say that, uh, you know, you happen to choose a, a particular thing. There's definitely uh, seems to be an increase in uh, problems relating to sexual abuse with people who have IC, you know. So mm. um, now that the bones would not diagnose that, but the bones might say, Let's go back to the grandfather again. Uh, why is your grandfather hanging around you like a shade? What did he do to you that needs to be forgiven? Because, mm. you know, we, when we go to the other side, we are released from any of our karmic blemishes as long as we have forgiveness from the, pre the person who did it to us, you know. So the HIV patient who got HIV, who's forgiven that person, that person will not have to have a karmic... Uh, you know, bad brownie point against them, if you like, uh, because of that dysfunction. But what happens is often the, the, the dead are hanging around the living, wanting to be forgiven, and the only one who can make that diagnosis for them would be a psychic or a shaman, you know. And then, you know, what will often happen, and we're talking about the African uh, paradigm now, that woman who may is, has come for the problem, and it may be a man with prostate cancer, you know, who was sexually abused by his grandfather. Um, and uh, then that woman or the man will say, no, he's the one who abused me when I was young. And then I have, I, you know, the next thing is we have to do forgiveness re rituals to release that person for three very good reasons. One is that you don't want to be haunted. There's nothing good about having a ghost of somebody around you because it gets in the way of your, your energy flow, your life flow, your chi or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the other thing is that forgiveness is healthful. We know now scientifically that it's good to forgive because it's like 
leaving that burden behind, you know, the, the spiritual song, you've got to lay down that burden down by the riverside. You know, you've got to let go of that stuff because it doesn't serve you anymore. It's, it's disempowering you. The mm. third reason to forgive is that frequently in African thinking, and I think this is true generally, uh, reincarnation is alive and well, and the spirits will usually reincarnate back into the family to try and work out the syndrome that they, uh, that they uh, are accountable for. So if the man is released from his sin, uh, he can come back as your child or your grandchild or your great-grandchild without that particular dysfunction, whether it's alcohol abuse or whether it's sexual abuse or gambling abuse or whatever, he has a much better chance. And if he's in your bloodline, you want him to come back that way. You don't want him to come back the way he was before. So this is, I think, the, the, the power of, of the African mindset. I've never met people that can be more forgiving than Africans. You know, with all the issues we look at in Africa, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out of Mandela and, and Tutu. And if it wouldn't have been for that, South Africa would have been a bloodbath when apartheid fell. The Hutus yeah, and Tutus are, you know, are, are hanging out with each other and are the best of friends. That's a very African thing. That's a beautiful thing. Um, Mandela yeah. really stood up at that point and became an icon for forgiveness. You always tell a story, and I love staying in the African uh, realm and by the down by the river and forgiveness. You talk about uh, the story of when someone commits a crime uh, and they uh, a deadly crime, more like a capital punishment and a rowboat, and uh, you know what I'm talking about. You mean where, you're talking about or ordeal poisons? Uh, where someone uh, that might have killed a family member is put in a boat and rowed out into the middle of the lake. Uh, you always tell that story about the no. person on the side has to make the decision uh, about what happens to them out in the lake. No well, remembrance. I'm very upset to know that you're actually seeing another Sangoma because I don't remember <laughs> that story. Uh, I, I don't remember that story. But no, I, I think you had, told, you had told it to me about where they're on the, the person who's accused of the crime is chained and rowed out into the middle of the lake and they're going to be thrown overboard and drowned as part of the punishment. But yeah. the, only, the only person that can make the decision not to have them thrown over, over the uh, into the water is the person who the crime was committed against or a family member. So it mm -hmm. it becomes a decision about forgiveness and hauntings, as as you say. Yeah, you know, I, I don't remember that, but I like I like the story. You know, I can <laughs> give you a similar story that is not a story, but you know, Zulus were a very warrior nature, nation, and the Shaka Zulu was called the Black Napoleon. And they conquered the whole of Southern Africa. Uh, but Zulu warriors who went into war, uh, if they killed their opponent, and of course this was hand-to-hand -hand combat, they would disembowel them to release their spirit. And they would apologize to the spirit and say, look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean any harm. I'm just doing what I had to do. you know." And then when they went back after battle, they would be cleansed by the Sangomas to make sure they hadn't picked up intrusive spirits on the mm. battlefield, angry spirits. And I think that, you know, this is a lesson we need to know that sometimes post-traumatic stress disorder is not just from the stress of battle, but who knows how many people have picked up angry spirits from the battlefield 
who want to wreak vengeance on them. And how many of those dreams, those terif- terrifying nightmares, are from intrusive spirits? And I know for a fact that Native Americans, uh, uh, medicine men and women, have much better results with uh, PTSD than Western psychiatry, probably for that reason is my guess. Mm. That's a great point. Uh, you don't hear that brought up very often. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so we, we, we <laughs> that's an amazing story about the Zulus. It's, it's, you know, being so warrior and, and on the battlefield, here you are. And then so I'm assuming at the end when things settle down is when they disembowel the, the dead. No, immediately. Immediately. And you know, they kill them. And then because they're close by, they would disembowel them release the spirit, apologize. And in this, of course, they were, yeah, I guess if they were facing five other guys, they'd have to I, I was going to say, that, that's it for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If they didn't have time to do it, then they would have to do it later. Oy. Well, yeah. I think we're moving into uh, uh, gastroenterology here. Urology. <laughs> Dave, yeah. I always ask uh, our guest for a special health tip uh, on something that you have learned through your own wisdom and journeys. And clearly you've been on a number of journeys. So I would like to know if you have a Western tip and a Sangoma tip, or I would love to have a Sangoma tip. Can I have two tips then? You can have two tips because you're (laughs) so special for us. (laughs) Well, the, the Western tip I would say would be spiritual practice, spiritual practice, spiritual practice. Mm. And the, the, the Sangoma equivalent would be we pray by singing and dancing, which means that if you're going to have a spiritual practice translated into your body, uh, it doesn't have to be singing and dancing. It can be Tai Chi. It can be yoga. It can be drumming. It can be dancing. But it has to be done for its own sake. It can be windsurfing. It can be surfing. But it mustn't be to perform or look good. And if you're going to yoga class to make an impression on the, the woman next to you, it's not going to work. It's an inner directed spiritual practice done for its own sake to balance you. And I think that's probably the best thing you can do for your health because there's a difference between healing and curing. Everybody can be healed. Not everybody can be cured. And at the end of the day, it's better to be healed than to be cured, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because that's much better for your karma. The, the Sangoma tip, I would say, I'll just paraphrase what my teacher said to me, P.H.M. Charlie, when I first met him. It was the first day I ever met him. He said, the trouble with you white people is you've lost the way. You have forgotten your ancestors. You are unprotected in life. You have no insurance policy. You are like papers blowing in the wind. Mm-hmm. Is that part of your spiritual practice, if, you know, and I'm talking about ancestors that you loved, Remembering, of course, ancestors is a, is a very broad term. Everybody is your ancestor. Uh, you know, uh, your ancestor or your spirit guide might have been your brother or mother or father or lover in a previous life. Uh, so that, you know, the Buddhists say you should look at everybody as if they were your mother and treat them with compassion because they might have been your mother. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of different ancestors from different lives, and the basic ingredient of the ancestor is they love you. And there's no time on the other side. So the fact that they may have been in Tibet, you know, 400 years ago, doesn't make any difference. They're on that side there. They love you. They want to help you. So if you have a sense of having ancestors and you know who they are, or even if you had anybody that you loved, maybe a, a teacher, a friend who's passed, a nanny, uh, a grandma, a grandpa, an uncle, an aunt, put their picture on a white cloth 
make a little altar to your ancestors, uh, make little offerings every now and again, and ask to receive, because because of free will, you cannot receive unless you ask. Uh, mm. Jesus said it best. You know, he said it, said the whole thing. You got to ask to receive, and uh, it's it's a it's a it's a a practice of gratitude. Because if you get a good dream that helps you in your future career, don't think of it as hey, it's good. I'm going to listen to that. Go to your altar and thank your ancestors, because more than likely they scripted that dream for you. And the more you talk to them, the more you ask them, the more you you get into your dream time, uh, the more you have gratitude, the more it will grow. But you have to have trust because you won't see it. You know, you might see it in funny ways. You might see an animal that your grandmother loved that comes to you in a funny way or a hummingbird that's doing weird things. Uh, those are messages from the beyond to tell them that we count and that they love us uh, and they care for us and they're, th they're there to keep us in line with our destiny path so we mm. don't lose the way. So that's my tips, closing tips. Oh, what a beautiful tip. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. I, know, I, I, like... I knew this would be very special for us. Uh, David, we've covered a number of things. Is there anything that you would like to say before we uh, close? No, just thanks so much. It's really, it's, you know, it's so great being with both of you. Christina, I've been with her before in this light. You, you have been in different different other hats so it's really nice to be with you in this in this way and i appreciate you having me i know that we're going to want to have you on again uh there's so many more as christina has alluded to we could go for hours and i think we should yeah i do believe <laughs> so. anytime I'm, I'm available <laughs> excellent you know, christina have, any have thoughts? voice will sit in front of whatever it is i have to sit in front of <laughs> oh that's wonderful i i just want to be in your presence <laughs> well, we and I want to be this little little child sitting there just taking it all in <laughs> okay. well you have a lot of wisdom yourself so your questions are always great and uh, they were last time and they, and they always are very insightful oh, we are so honored to have you on our show and have you as part of the Yoga Hub family it, it's just lovely and, and I know that we We'll have more time together, Dave and right. Dr. Coombs. Yeah. Yes. And I look forward to it. Yes, I'm grateful to our very special guest, Dr. David Coombs, for sharing his expertise and wisdom in so many different ways for us. I also want to thank all of my healers and all of my teachers throughout my life and on my journey. And I look forward to sharing another quadrant of the California Healthcare Galaxy with Christina and our next guest uh, next week. And until that time, I wish you all optimal health. So thank you all for joining us today for another wonderful, wonderful time together. Um, and again, next Tuesday for Magical Medical Tour at 1030 Pacific Standard Time, 130 Eastern Time, and also for Trinity of Life, if you have a moment to join us on that. Uh, that is Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, of course, this is yogahub.tv. Now, I also want to let you know that you can be in touch with uh, Glenn Woolman at myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman and on Twitter at Glenn Woolman. Uh, so, um, and of course, his website, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about more about his metaphor square breath which he used uh, as he worked and he created so 
Enjoy, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Namaste.